BioInsights podcast. I'm Roisin McGuigan, an editor with BioInsights, and in this episode, we'll be looking at the evolution of the gene therapy field, with a specific focus on the complexities posed by biodistribution, vector shedding, and transgene expression in gene therapy development. Joining me today, we have Dr. Paul Byrne. Paul is Senior Director of Genomics at Protogene. He has 25 years of industry experience and can frequently be found speaking at symposia on topics such as analytical development challenges for ATMPs, biodistribution and safety assessment considerations for cell and gene therapies, and more. Paul received his BSc in biology from the University of Stirling and his MSc in research from the University of Glasgow. So thank you for joining me today, Paul, and I'm really looking forward to our discussion. So, Paul, you've been working in gene therapy for a long time now. What do you see as the key learnings of the industry related to bioanalysis of in vivo therapeutic approaches? Yeah, yeah, it has has been a long time. Um, I've got the grey hair to show it, and thankfully you can't see it for this podcast. I can remember probably about 25 years ago when I first started supporting these studies. You know, we were receiving you know, cardboard boxes with tissues wrapped in kitchen foil at room temperature, kind of leaking over each other, which obviously wasn't ideal. But there's been a lot of advancements um, and key learnings um, in that time. Probably more than we've got time to chat about now, but maybe just to include a few. I think from my perspective, I think what's been a really key kind of learning is actually from the regulator's perspective. I think obviously we see them being a, a bit more strict in terms of like CMC and clinical but I think from preclinical development, they become much more pragmatic and practical um, and very open to kind of science-driven justifications for how these kind of in-life or analytical packages are, are designed. And I think, you know, a really good example is for the preclinical biodistributions, um, part of a key part of those IND enabling um, preclinical studies. You know, historically, we would test about 40 tissues per animal. And that was based on a, a regulatory document that I think is actually still in place. But now the regulators are much more pragmatic, as I was saying. You know, it does depend on the route of administration, the mechanism of action and the tropism. But we're generally testing about maybe 15 tissues on average. Obviously, it differs depending on the molecule we're working with, but a much more pragmatic and practical approach to how we're supporting this work. Also, the kind of the tissue lists are different depending on how the molecule is being dosed. And here we're really thinking about AAVs. Um, so an ocular gene therapy would be very different from something that was dosed systemically. Um, historically, we would just do the same tissues. Um, but here, you know, you pretty much select the tissues that are relevant for how you're dosing the material and what the tropism of your vector is. I think uh, another good example is in terms of the analysis we do. Um, in this case, for the transgene expression. Now, this is something we didn't really do um, when kind of gene therapies were starting to kind of come onto um, the market, but we started doing it for everything, no matter what. And again, now it's pretty much based on where we see the positives in the qPCR work. So we do a qPCR to look for the vector, and where we see a positive or the presence of that vector, we would then look for the transgene 
And again, very different to what we used to do where we did everything. So very much more practical um, and science driven. I think what we're also seeing is that potentially there's no need to do these IND enabling studies. If you've already done it, if a, a developer has already done it with a similar molecule. So if you've got a, an AAV um, capsid, it's got the same capsid, it's got the same vector backbone, and all you're changing is that therapeutic gene. If you've got data for that previous version of that molecule to show that um, it was successful and moved into the clinic, then you've got good justifications for skipping most of that preclinical development and going straight into clinical development. Again, it's still very much on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, actually working with a few companies now who are waiting to hear from the regulators. But again, it just kind of highlights you know, how practical um, and pragmatic the, the regulators have come, which I think is a good thing. But maybe later on, we'll give you some examples of where they've actually became a bit stricter in terms of what we're doing during the development. One of the other things that's changed is, is the validation requirements. And again, this is very much focused on the molecular biology. You know, back in the day, we were just starting to understand how to validate these assays, what parameters, to what level. Did we do the qPCR? Did we also do the extraction? So very relaxed to where we are now, um, even though there's no regulatory compliance, which again, I think we'll touch on later on in the podcast, but quite stringent now, especially for um, molecules that are in later stage clinical development. So making sure you've got a very precise and accurate assay, you've got trending, and in QC samples as part of your extractions and QPCRs, just to give you all the confidence that you would need um, uh, and the data that's being generated. And then just, just finally is the equipment. You know, I think from a, a science perspective, that the principles of what we do is, is pretty much the same and hasn't changed in all those decades. But the equipment just makes it a lot easier um, to analyze samples as quickly as possible. There's better connectivity. Um, it allows us to kind of apply more high throughput work streams. And a very good example of that is the automated extraction platforms we've got. You know, we can extract um, nucleic acid from up to 96 samples in a single run. So I think equipment um, has been one of the big advancements in key learning, you know, but there's many and we could be here all day talking about it, but just to give you an idea of what some of them are. Absolutely. Great answer. Thank you. So next up, what would you identify as the key commonalities and the important differences that exist in approaching bioanalysis of ex vivo gene modified cell therapies? Yeah, good question. So I think when we compare like gene therapies, so AAV is a good example, to things like CAR T, so these um, ex vivo gene modified cell therapies, I think there's probably more differences than there are similarities. You know, I suppose the initial difference to note is the scope of that preclinical work can be quite different between those two types of, of molecules. If you look at the regulatory approval documents uh, for CAR-T molecules like Camrya and yes, Carter, you'll actually see that not a huge amount of work is actually performed during that preclinical phase. Now, they might do some in vitro or in vivo on off-target tumour activity, and then usually just a biodistribution. Um, again, the main difference here is that main analytical tool would be flow cytometry. So as a rule of thumb, when we're doing preclinical development for cell therapies, we would use flow. Now, there is some exceptions to that where we have used molecular biology tools. In that sense, then the way that we would support it would be quite similar, albeit a little bit more complicated, and because we're usually looking for multiple targets for cell therapies. But as I said, as a rule of thumb, you know, in this preclinical development, um, we're usually using flow. You know, so there's probably many differences 
um, during the preclinical development um, rather than you know, commonalities or similarities. I think for the clinical, then the bioanalysis focus is, is again a little bit different. Again, we're here just talking about biodistribution, um, shedding and transient expression. There's many more other kind of analytical, bioanalytical endpoints to these very complicated clinical trials, but we're really just kind of focusing on a very small part of that. For AAV gene therapy, then you know the focus is on shedding um, primarily, um, but we can also use those same workflows, expertise and equipment to also look for things like replication competent viruses and maybe any other adventitious agents as well. And we can do the same thing but for CAR-Ts as well, um, looking for those replication competent viruses, adventitious agents. But for the CAR-T, it's more about monitoring of that CAR-T. So actually looking at the concentrations and persistence over time. Um, and actually different to what we do preclinical, the main analytical tool here um, is qPCR. So there, you know, the kind of the workflows and the approaches are quite similar um, between the two, but the focus is different. You know, AAV is more of a, a safety endpoint, whereas for the CAR-T, it's all about monitoring that product. So I think I think the, 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 the kind of take home message here, you know, it's very important to understand the molecule that you're working with because the analytical requirements will be quite different. Fantastic. Thank you. So some important considerations there. And next up, uh, we're going to look to the future. So how is the field of gene therapy evolving? And what new therapies and delivery methods do you see on the horizon? Yeah, another good question. You know, it, it seems that every day I turn on my computer, there's a, a new or improved way, you know, to modify and deliver gene therapies or there's a new generation of these adoptive cell therapies, these CAR-Ts. I think if we first start with gene therapy and think about um, AAV, I think there's almost like two factions that are kind of split geographically. I think on one hand in Europe, um, it's very much the AAV is still the future um, for gene therapy, whereas uh, in America, the other faction, um, there seems to be a movement away that people are thinking that maybe AAV has, has had its day. I know there's issues with immunogenicity um, with AAV type molecules, potential side effects um, from people getting very high concentrations of modified viruses. And we may be moving away from that and looking for other delivery mechanisms. So things like plasmids um, and lipid nanoparticles, so more non-viral delivery. Um, and I think maybe the, the truth or, or the future is maybe somewhere in the middle. I think we'll continue to see kind of classical AV-based therapies being developed and coming onto the market, where we will see other non-viral delivery mechanisms getting um, getting a lot of um, attention um, coming onto the market at some point in the future. So that's something to look out for. I think the next couple of molecules um, are not generally kind of new technologies, but we are seeing a lot more of these molecules, uh, mainly preclinical um, and some in clinical development as well. And the first is gene editing. And um, we're seeing a huge amount of interest in that from a preclinical perspective. So again, that's something we're going to be seeing and hearing a lot of um, in the next couple of years. The other kind of type of molecules, now it's debatable whether these are actually classed as cell and gene therapy. But things like oligos, um, silencing and microRNAs, locked nucleic acids, you know, if we do class them as, as cell and gene therapy, um, then they make up about 25% of the molecules that are mainly in preclinical development. So again, I think we're going to see these kind of small molecules um, playing a big part of preclinical clinical and then potentially um, coming onto the market um, in the future. 
I think to make things even more complicated, we're actually seeing a combination um, of therapies. So not only are we seeing AAVs that are being um, modified to deliver these therapeutic genes, they're also delivering gene editing tools as well. So that can create a bit of a, a bioanalytical um, headache because we're looking at different tests here, you know, molecular tools, looking at the AAV and the tran transgene expression. Whereas for gene editing, that's all about NGS. So that can make the analytical um, work um, quite complicated. But a very exciting thing to see is combining um, multiple theories to try and make even better um, gene therapies. I think finally, and again, I think we could talk about this all day, but you know, we're constantly seeing um, novel approaches to how um, molecules like adoptive cell therapies like CAR-Ts are being developed. You know, I think there've been multiple generations for those types of molecules. And now, you know, rather kind of terrifyingly, you know, we're seeing artificial intelligence and big data being used to modify those molecules at a genetic level to improve the safety and the efficacy. So again, that gives us some headaches from an analytical perspective, but it's really interesting to see where that's going. But also we're, we're seeing, and obviously these, these uh, molecules and the patient's own T cells have been modified. Usually that's performed using an integrating virus, like a retro or a retrovirus which has some safety concerns. But now uh, I'm hearing that electroporation has been used and that's getting some traction. So again, I think that's something that may potentially be on the horizon. And I think without getting into detail, you know, like under kind of what I call the, the cell and gene therapy umbrella, there's a lot of very complex and diverse molecules. And as those molecules evolve, the analytical methods need to evolve with it. You know, so it's a very challenging space, but at the same time, very, very exciting. You touched on safety there. Um, drilling down a bit for our next question, um, can you tell us why biodistribution, vector shedding and transgene expression are such critical factors for ensuring the safety of cell and gene therapies? Yeah, I can do. Hopefully this will be an easier and a bit of a quicker question to address. But yeah, I think they play an absolute critical part um, in the development of cell and gene therapies. I think for the preclinical phase of development, it's very important to understand the, the distribution and persistence of these molecules. Um, in the case of AAV, also understanding um, the very high levels of gene expression that we'll see not only in target but non-target tissues, and then taking that data and then correlating that back to any toxicology findings um, before we can move um, into clinical development. Um, shedding can play a big part during preclinical development. Um, but some clients are not doing it, some companies are not doing it. I think the last maybe two or three AAVs to come onto the market, they didn't do any shedding assessment during the preclinical um, phase, even though it's a regulatory requirement, they instead did it um, in the clinical phase. So another maybe good example of how the regulators are being a bit more pragmatic and probably open to those kind of like science-based justifications for not doing it. I think within clinical development, then, you know, there's, there's multiple analytical endpoints that we're not going to touch on today. But shedding is a very important um, analytical um, safety endpoint there. You know, it's, it's very important to understand what you're seeing, where and for how long. Um, and very important to understand that as you move through clinical development and ultimately onto the market. But yeah, it's, it's, it's an absolute critical part um, of the development of both cell and gene therapies. Great, thank you. And can you outline for us the key challenges associated with assessing and monitoring biodistribution and vector shedding? Yeah, I can do. You know, there's many challenges, uh, many hot topics um, at the moment. i probably just pick out a few of them. I think the first one, I think this will be no surprise to anyone who has worked in this industry, 
and being exposed to the molecular biology tests. And that's the current lack of regulatory guidance. So currently there is no guidance for how these assays should be developed um, or validated. Now, a few years back, um, people were trying to get us to follow the BMV. So the BMV is the bioanalytical method validation, but that's written specifically for things like ligand binding and chromatography type assays. And it's really not applicable to qPCR. So I think I'm quite glad that we moved away from that conversation. But it still leaves us with nothing. So what do we do instead? Well, actually, there's still quite a lot of information out there. You know, we have a number of academic publications and the Mikey is a very good example. Again, that's very research focused. It's really guidance for um, research scientists to make sure that the data um, they're generating is of the highest quality. But there's a lot to take from that um, outside um, of that academic kind of institutions. We've got many white papers, um, position papers, webinars, podcasts. Um, in Europe and America, we've got consortiums of CRO that are all generating, you know, kind of opinion papers. So, and I think there's a lot of common themes, um, but also there's some slight differences in how the work should be approached. And I'm not really seeing, you know, any assays that have been developed um, or validated badly. You know, I think it all depends on the context of use. Um, and making sure it's fit for purpose. But I am concerned that the regulators, as they see more molecules being developed, if they start seeing more of these IND enabling studies, that they, there may be a need for more consistency in how these assays um, are validated um, and the data presented. You know, it seems like every other week we're seeing a cell and gene therapy going on clinical hold. And again, so it just kind of highlights, again, they, they're all usually um, focusing on the, the CMC, but they're usually related to the analytical tests. Um, and, you know, it's it's potentially moving forward. You know, they might start looking at preclinical and clinical. So I think maybe that's just my concern, is that that lack of consistency and how people are validating these methods might become an issue. But, you know, we've not had guidance for the last couple of decades. Who's to say we won't have it for the other decades? So we'll see. I think the other issues is um, timelines and potential lead times. You know, there's a lot of demand for this type of work. Um, so we're seeing long lead times across the industry for supporting the analytical, analytical requirements for the preclinical and clinical development of these products. So it's just something to be aware of and to try and factor into your planning. It potentially might not be a problem, you know, because certainly for lead times for in-life studies, are even worse than potentially the analytical, um, especially for primate studies. But what we're actually seeing is that um, um, sponsors, you know, companies aren't really considering the time needed to develop it and validate these assays. So they're they're coming to us and saying, look, we've got some samples. Can you test them? We want results next month. Then obviously we're saying no. You know, it takes two, three, sometimes four months to develop and validate these methods. Um, so it's very important that that's factored into lead times. You don't want to approach a vendor, uh, go to the back of the queue and potentially wait nine months um, to have a validated assay. So I think timelines and lead times very, very important. And I think the next kind of challenge is probably a hot topic is the kind of what I see is a bit of a battle at the moment between the two main molecular biology tools. Um, the first is, is qPCR, quantitative polymerase chain reaction. Very well-established, robust um, and sensitive molecular biology tool that's been used to support the development of cell and gene therapy molecules for decades now. And then we have the new kid in the block, um, digital PCR. You know, it's probably been about maybe for a decade now, 
um, maybe a bit more or less. I'm not too sure. I can't remember. But what we have seen in the last couple of years is, is an increase um, in demand to use this during the development of cell and gene therapy. Um, and I've got a funny feeling that maybe the next question might focus on that. So rather than getting into too much here, um, I think I'll wait for the next question before talking too much about DDPCR. Yep, absolutely. You're correct. So as a follow up to that, now you've sort of outlined, outlined those challenges. Um, if we look to solutions, what new approaches are being developed to address these challenges? And specifically, what impact is that introduction of digital PCR having? Yes, and it's a very hot topic, as I was saying. Um, I spend a lot of time talking about this. I think the kind of introduction of digital PCRs has kind of muddied the water a little bit, and I'll try and explain. As we were saying, you know, we are um, seeing digital PCR being used more and more during the, the preclinical, um, supporting the manufacture of these products, and also the clinical development um, of cell and gene therapies. Now, we see it being included in, in a lot of literature, there's white papers and webinars. Um, most of that is focusing on the development and the validation of that method. But what I'm not seeing too much of is where it should be used, but more importantly, where it should not be used or where it doesn't make sense to use it. And again, I'll try and explain my thinking there. If you start with CMC, um, so those analytical strategies to support the manufacture of these products, then the, the DDPCR is a perfect fit. It's a match made in heaven. If you're um, manufacturing um, batches or you're changing your manufacturing process, um, you want as much confidence as you can get before dosing this material into pre-clinical species or, or patients, then you want an accurate and precise assay. And that's exactly what DDPCR or DPCR brings to the party, much higher precision and accuracy. So it's a very, very good fit um, for those CMC type applications. During clinical development, then it, it makes some sense to use. You know, it's potentially better at overcoming potential inhibitors. You know, I'm not going to go into too much about the, the 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 background for these methods. I'm kind of making an assumption that the audience may be well versed in qPCR um, or digital PCR. If not, maybe kind of head off and do a bit of a, a Wikipedia search. Um, but the way it's set up is that it could be better at overcoming potential inhibitors. Although if you've got a good extraction method, then that will get rid of any inhibitors that will be present in those samples. It also might increase the chance of detecting rare events just due to the, the kind of the multiple kind of reactions that are set up. But what we've seen actually when detecting signals um, close to or below the LQ, but above the LOD, the assay, we're seeing really high levels of variability, making it quite difficult to validate. So I think you really need to consider the kind of the pros and cons um, of the methods and what it is you're doing and what it is you're trying to achieve before you know selecting um, the most appropriate test. Again, if you're looking to get you know very precise readings of something you're going to get a good concentration of, then it might be a good fit. If you're trying to quantify material that's down near the limits of your assay, then it's potentially not a good fit. So it's just something to keep um, in mind. I think preclinicals, the kind of the phase of development where it, to me it makes the least amount of sense to be using um, digital PCR. I think one of the, the issues with digital PCR is it's got a very small dynamic range um, compared to qPCR, which is a, a quite a large dynamic range. If you think about an AAV preclinical biodistribution, something that's dosed systemically with a tropism for the liver, you're going to get very, very high concentrations um, of your vector and target and non-target um, organs. You're going to get variability within different animals and different groups. 
Um, so it's very difficult to dilute that material um, consistently down into the sweet spot of that small dynamic range. And that's going to result in multiple repeats. And I'll give you um, a good example of why that's an issue um, in a minute. I think when, when I'm talking um, to kind of potential um, sponsors and clients, the kind of take home message for me is that, you know, for many applications um, and molecules are, are well designed and validated qPCR should be sufficient. Now, there's obviously exceptions to that rule. If you're trying to multiplex an assay, then digital PCR might be a good option. You don't have positive controls and um, you don't have PCR bias. It's going to be easier to, well, potentially easier um, to develop and validate. For most other molecules and applications, qPCR will give you all the, the, the results that you really need. To go back to digital PCR, um, these studies are large. Preclinical studies, you could be looking at thousands of samples. Um, clinical, it depends on how the molecule is being delivered and maybe what kind of shedding you're seeing, but they can be very large and can run over numbers of years. What we're seeing for um, some of the platforms and um, the digital PCR platforms is they're very expensive to run. So the reagents are expensive, the plastic wear is more expensive. Again, this is all compared to qPCR. Um, and it takes a lot longer to run as well, and that's factored into the cost as well. And that additional cost um, and duration can be prohibitive um, for running these types um, of studies using digital PCR. When we factor in that small dynamic range that I was mentioning, when you're going to see more repeats, again, that's going to increase your cost and the duration of the study, and again, potentially making it prohibitive. So things you really need to kind of take into consideration. But to go against everything I'm saying, you know, we are continuing to see an increase in demand to use digital PCR in both preclinical and clinical. Um, and we kind of see two clients who we're engaging with. Um, the first are early adopters for the technology. So they understand digital PCR very, very well. They understand the pros and the cons. But more importantly, they know where their product is going and they know at what concentration it's going to be at. So they can put in place the necessary dilution scheme to get it into that sweet spot of the dynamic range and to make it as efficient as possible. On the other hand, you know, we're talking to customers, clients who um, just see it as the new kid in the, bl the block. You know, it's the new shiny piece of equipment in the lab and they want to use it no matter what. So we have these conversations with other scientists. Everything that we say is, is resonating with them. They're agreeing with us and they're just saying, look, we understand what you're saying, we agree, but someone somewhere has made the decision that they want to use digital PCR and that's it. So even it's going to take longer, it's going to cost more, it's not going to give you, it's not going to give you any more data than what you get from a qPCR, they want to use digital PCR. So it's quite a, an interesting um, and sometimes frustration space to be in at the moment, but we have lots of conversations about digital PCR. And I think just to finish off this little piece, you know, if you are developing a molecule and you're trying to think about what would be the best molecular tool, you know, do some research, maybe try and engage with an SME and just try and understand um, what would be the best tool for you um, to provide the data to move your product through the different phases of either preclinical or clinical development. So some important considerations there. And now we're on to our final question. So how can the insights and best practices we've discussed today be applied to specific R&D efforts? And what would your key advice be for our listeners who are working in this space? Yeah, we could probably kill uh, multiple birds with the one stone here in terms of insights, best practices and, and key advice. You know, I think first, you know, we touched about the, 
touched on the the complexity and diversity um, of molecules that are currently captured under what I refer to as the cell and gene therapy umbrella. So it's very important to understand um, the molecule that you're working with and then choosing the best analytical tool. You know, and just to quickly summarise, anything kind of cellular-based flow cytometry is a very good fit. Anything gene therapy, then you're looking at the molecular biology tools, what care should be taken um, and what one you use um, for these small molecules, oligos, um, silencing RNAs, these locked nucleic acids, then mass spectrometry is very good. And then finally, anything gene editing where you're kind of modifying the genome, then NGS can be um, a good um, tool. And again, you can kind of um, see or hear there, you know, that if you're kind of combining multiple therapies, then you're looking at maybe two, sometimes three um, analytical endpoints, and they're not easy to perform. So it's just something to be aware of. We also touched on the lack of, of regulatory guidance. Again, this is more specific to the molecular biology tools. Um, I think if you are um, developing a method, then just ensure that you're developing it and validating it as best as you can. You know, take into consideration what phase of development you're currently at, um, but also maybe just think about future-proofing these assays as well. There's a there's a minimal amount of additional work that you could do within the preclinical phase, you know, to future-proof these assays so they can be used in CMC, albeit the validation is a little bit different, but also in the clinical development. So, and for example, a qPCR to look for the biodistribution of an AAV vector preclinical can also be used to look for shedding um, in the clinical environment just by including into your validation those appropriate matrices. So look for synergies um, and try and future-proof your methodology. As I said, in the absence of any kind of regulatory guidance, you know, utilise what resources we have, and there's a lot of them. But I think don't be scared to make decisions that are based on the, the context of use. Um, and your own expertise. You know, you'll know the molecule you're working with better than anyone. Um, you might know the technology better than anyone. So don't be scared to make some decisions that are a little bit different to what you're seeing out there. As long as you're taking a very science-driven approach to it, then I don't think you can go wrong. And then just to finish off, you know, these products are um, expensive to develop, to bring to the market. So we really want to kind of minimise any delays. So just planning is very, very important. Um, not only in life, but obviously the analytical requirements as well, making sure you've got all your assets ready to go to support whatever phase of development you're at. Um, and with that, just to thank everyone for their time. Hope there was something of interest, hopefully not too controversial. And I think my details will be included in the podcast. So if anyone wants to continue the conversation, then I look forward to chatting to you. So thanks very much. Well, thank you to Paul for such a fascinating discussion. This episode was brought to you in partnership with Protogene. And if you enjoyed listening, don't forget to subscribe to the BioInsight podcast.